1: for free shipping and 365 day returns.
2: Michael Owen, born the 7th of November, 1980, in Pontypridd, mid Glamorgan, Wales. Michael has one of the great names from Welsh rugby's 21st century success story. He first came to prominence in his homeland as a member of the Wales side that reached the final of the Under-19 World Cup in 1999, making his debut in club rugby with Pontypridd the same year, where he went on to play a major role in the club's Welsh Cup success of 2002 and their run to the European Challenge Cup final the same season. After five seasons in the Pontypridd first 15 in 2003, he signed for Newport Gwent Dragons following the restructuring of Welsh club rugby, spending five seasons at Rodney Parade before ending his club career in the English Premiership with a spell at Saracens. However, it's his exploits playing for Wales which have afforded him the status of one of the nation's recent greats, where over five years he won 41 caps, captaining his country to Grand Slam glory in 2005 while he was a member of the squad which competed in the 2007 Rugby World Cup. In France, during his career, he was also selected for the British and Irish Lions' 2005 tour of New Zealand, and also represented a World 15 and the Barbarians against South Africa. On Talk Sport this evening, I'm joined in my sporting life by the Welsh rugby great Michael Owen. As a young sporting Welsh prodigy growing up, what was it like to know that it was another young sporting Welsh-born prodigy called Michael Owen?
3: Yeah, I um as obviously he's like I think a year older than me, um, and obviously being a Liverpool fan, I followed. Uh, his progress fairly closely and sort of saw him coming through. Um, obviously, my parents couldn't have predicted that uh, I'd uh, play rugby and then getting asked all the time about uh the football in Mike Owen. But, have you ever yeah. met him? Uh, I've never met him, no, yes. Um, but he's obviously he's an amazing player. And uh, the first, I think it was one of the first um press interviews I did, it was around the time of the Rugby World Cup, and I got like tacked up royally. I got um. I'd said that I was a Liverpool fan and they pictured me with a Liverpool shirt on and a Liverpool scarf saying I'm the next Mike glow and stuff like that. So when I started playing for Pont a then there were some big characters in the in the side and I used to get loads of stick because I was pictured in the newspaper with a Liverpool scarf and a Liverpool thing like so it was uh, yeah, certainly uh made the guys aware of me and um I got asked, got me introduced to the team certainly. Tell
2: us about your childhood.
3: Uh, yeah, I was uh, a great childhood. So I got an older brother, um, who's uh, David. Yeah, David was five or six years older than me, and um, yeah, he was uh, a brilliant brother. I sort of really looked up to him. Um, and a massive influence on, on my rugby career and stuff and I, in, I used to go on a Saturday i go away with my dad um, to He's watch He's also a rugby player Yeah, my dad played for pont as well played over 100 games for pont and uh, as did my uncle as well so uh, a real rugby family if you like and then um, we used to go and watch my brother play So he played for a team called uh, it's difficult pronunciation mm-hmm. Bather, Bather um or Beithai to say it correctly, um, and he had playing for their youth team, and they had a really good youth team, and you used to go and watch them every Saturday, um, and they were they had a brilliant time, they had a really good side, they beat a, a really strong Pontypridd uh, side in the like the local. Cup competition, Pontypreet side, containing like some Martin Williams, Lee Jarvis, like future Welsh international. So it was a massive achievement for a small village club, and watching that was like a great dedication in terms of rugby for me.
2: The impression we get, um, you know, and I don't want to be cliched, but the impression we get, particularly with people from South Wales, is that every town and village still. Um, has a, a, an unbelievable passion for the game of rugby, and every town and village has a team that turns out top players.
3: Yeah, yeah it was massive. Some of the school that I went to, so Brinklenog, um, they were... Thank you for saying yeah, that. They yeah, are, I've got that one in a few, Danny. Um, no,
2: there's even two more difficult schools before right, that, though, isn't it? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: So, uh, yeah, I'll tell you those. So, Slime yeah, th- yeah. And uh, Gwyn Kellen. So they were all, all difficult uh, Welsh I'm pronunciations. I'm sure
2: it's a beautiful language to speak. Yeah. It's just a tricky
3: one to look at. <laughs> definitely, <laughs> definitely. But uh, yeah, so from my school, there were people the likes of, uh, it was like five or six Welsh internationals. Um, and they had uh, in the school reception, there's like uh, photos of all the Welsh internationals all the way around. So I was in school with Gareth and Jenkins. Um, but like every day you'd go into school and you'd see all the pictures. So there was like Neil Jenkins, Paul John, uh, Andrew Lamerton, Greg Pross and all these guys I ended up playing with, um, and it was it was absolutely amazing. But as a kid, as well, I can remember look really looking up to. So I go and watch like Pontypool Senior Team, and they were in a. a, a really tremendous period really they were one of the best teams in Wales and they were a force in Europe in the early days of the European Cup Um, and the people like Paul John Neil Jenkins were there and you'd see them all the time around the around the village in fact like Neil Jenkins obviously meticulous like goal kicking practice and we used to have games for our junior school and we used to play on the local pitch and I can remember one time we interrupted Neil Jenkins' kicking <laughs> practice and he stayed on the pitch for like the first like 20 minutes of the game and he was at the other end of wherever the action was and he was practising his kicks while we were playing. But I think seeing those people um, was a massive inspiration. I think that, that was one of the things that was really special about Welsh Rugby. You'd see these guys playing for Wales in the Six Nations and they were like massive heroes or Five Nations as it was then. Um, and, and you'd see them driving around the village and, and whatever and it was just uh, really, really special. It felt like you could touch a, like that success, if you like, and you were thinking... I can, uh, I can achieve that if they can.
2: Were you also a good footballer?
3: I was a, I was an okay. I can't say I was a good footballer. I was an okay footballer. I used to really, really enjoy it as a kid. A so very tall, to, but you're I, a tall lad as well. Yeah, I was always tall. I did give up rugby for a little bit to play football. I didn't give up completely, but I stopped. I stopped playing for my rugby club and started playing football for about a season and a half. And um, I think it probably helped me in terms of um, just in terms of vision and being able to see passes and stuff, which was obviously an attribute for me later on in my rugby career.
2: I mean, you're obviously good uh, uh, as a rugby player, as a, as a young person, big, strong boy and all the rest of it, because I know it's here that uh, you're a player of the year for Pontypridd schools.
3: Which was, that was amazing as well. It was like, so I won that, for me, it was amazing. So winning that uh, trophy on the, this was a big shield and there were loads of names on it. And on that, there were people like Scott Gibbs, Neil Jenkins, That's all these people. Incredible. So it's like, you see in these, So that was like a district side, but you're seeing all these people and it really do, it does inspire you and make you want to aspire to try and, achieve what they have so yeah it was uh, it was pr- pretty special being able to do that
2: one of the things that's going to be laced through our story is um your own uh, family life because it's affected yeah. your rugby at various times yeah. with uh, and uh, you met your wife Lucy um, it, it, it's 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 very heartwarming. It's a, it's a it's a school romance, isn't it?
3: Yeah, yeah. So we were 15 and we met in uh, French class. Um, yeah, and we have been together. Do ever you remember
2: since. the exact class you were in? Yeah, or did she tell you to say that?
3: No, no, I I, I do remember. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, so it was good. So and we we've, we've been together, and she's been like unbelievable support to me and. Uh, Help and obviously we had, we had children quite young and stuff at 21. So my eldest yeah. daughter Ellie and uh, yeah, it's been the best thing that ever happened to us. We've had a we had a fantastic time as a family doing some having some really special times th- through. Um, rugby and stuff like that so yeah it's been, been amazing
2: I'm sure it's good it's good to have your kids whenever you can but to have them young is special isn't it
3: yeah I think so it's obviously there uh, pros and cons and I think my wife and I and uh, myself's plan is now is to retire about 45 and uh, and travel the world so kids will be about 21 then so it'll be uh, yeah they'll all be off and, and also doing they, their can, thing.
2: they can look after you from a much earlier age
3: definitely that's <laughs> the plan yeah so,
2: now just for the sake of not destroying the Welsh language the beautiful Welsh language um i've got the n- names of the three schools that you were play- you went to uh, during the time you were becoming a schoolboy international just uh, for the listeners just pronounce them for me please
3: yeah so it was uh thlone cronin front school yeah Gwyn junior school and Bryn uh
2: michael you uh, you're a brainy lad you've got 10 gcse's at school stayed on for your a levels well done everyone should get as much education as they can that's my opinion a lot of clubs were looking to sign you then as a, as a professional, uh, as a player on the cusp of professional uh, rugby. Uh, Saracens, um, Cardiff wanted to sign you, but you chose Pontypridd. Why was that?
3: Yeah, I think, um, so, uh, like Pontypridd was uh, obviously my local club as where well. I'd grown up um, going to watch them, so we used to play on a Saturday morning. You'd play for um, Pontypridd schools, and they'd give you tickets, and you'd go and watch Pontypridd in the afternoon. And at the time, Pont-y-pry-th were were fantastic. Um and it, it was just that was what that was like my dream to to play for them I guess and um I had obviously the choice of going to Cardiff and arguably Cardiff was more impressive. They invite, sent us like really nice letters, they um invited us down to sit in a box and watch a game and everything, so we went and did there. But then I guess it just felt uh, right to to try and play for pont de pri it's,
2: it's a heart decision, in, isn't it?
3: In the heart, definitely. I think the other thing that was on my mind as well, I was thinking a little bit that I'd have probably have more opportunities at pont a because arguably more chance to to come through the ranks there. Um, but it was completely different. pont de probably more amateur. But uh, I had an absolutely fantastic time. Some of the, probably the, some of the best days of my rugby career playing for Pont-a-Pri youth. Um, I went there when I was like 16 um, and it was absolutely unbelievable. Was brilliant.
2: 20 years on, Um, rugby is a very different game it's all on the surface it appears very slick very professional what kind of uh, game was it when you were what kind of club was Pontypridd?
3: it was amazing we had uh, had a brilliant time uh, playing for Pontypridd. so playing for Pontypridd youth I went there some really big characters in the team there was a guy called uh, Gareth Turner who was like uh, a big character and he was like he played one game for Pontypridd, and you speak to him now and he played one game for the seniors as a substitute, played like three minutes and it's still like the proudest achievement of his life and he absolutely <laughs> loved it, you know what I mean? And it's uh, and that was like what the guys do. So everyone who went to play for Ponte Pree youth had left maybe their village clubs to go there to have a crack at trying to get into the first team. Um, So it was just fantastic with a brilliant atmosphere and then when I was 18... Um, I got called up to play for the, the To train with the first team squad And I think it was probably the most nervous I've ever been in my rugby career There were some really big characters Some tough men as well So there was the, the likes of Dale McIntosh uh, Who was known as the chief um, Who was an absolutely iconic figure At Pontepreth Paul John and Neil Jenkins were there And there was a guy called Steve Lewis who was aptly named... Steele. Um, Steele was his <laughs> name. Uh, um, but he was a great guy and a great character. And I went to Pontepay training. It was these big names with David James, Martin Williams, all these guys who were, like, internationals. Um, and I went there, and I was so nervous going in. I didn't know whether they were going to, like, try and, like, beat you up or... or just, like, do you it's mean, it was a really, rugby club. Yeah, yeah, so you were, you were quite quite frightened. Like, But then uh, when you went there, they were absolutely amazing. Like, And they were really warm. And really nice and really welcoming. There was a guy called Neil Einan, who was a massive character who'd be like making fun of you. He nicknamed me Peter Brown after the former Scottish number eight, and used to commentate when we were playing touch. And there was just some great characters and great guys.
2: You um you had to sing a song uh, for your initiation. Do you remember what you sang?
3: Yeah, The Gambler by Kenny Rogers. Yeah, yeah. so your uh, choice. Yeah, it was my choice there. Yeah. So when we used to go on holidays as a family, we'd come back and we had. Uh, we didn't. Oh, I was. Like, we had, like some bad cars. My father was a bit tight, so we bought like uh, a Cortina and a thing, and the cassette player was in it. And yeah, the other gambler. We used to come back from holidays and be. Uh, playing the uh playing the the Kenny Rogers thing so we knew all the songs so but it was funny because i think it was just a sign of how much how ambitious i was as a rugby player in terms of i learned that song meticulously i learned the words like over and over so i knew them perfectly and after a few weeks it was brilliant you felt like a rock star you'd sing on the bus coming back from fixtures in england and um yeah, everyone would join in with the courses and stuff, so it was great fun.
2: You continued to play representative rugby for de- districts and for Wales and all that. Um I noticed you played for a Welsh schools fifteen against Australia that got absolutely hammered. Fifty six ten it says here. Yeah. Um George Smith actually played for Australia. Yeah, he so they was had a decent team.
3: He was a reason he was amazing. Do
2: you do you do you remember what happened to What the coach said to you as a group of players?
3: Yeah, Erwin yeah, Evans was the coach from Clanlesley and he was, uh, he was the coaches were they were good guys to be fair but then you yeah. know, after that game he said none of you'll have a professional career uh, because of that, like because of that game, he said we were like a disgrace and stuff. Basically, and yet
2: four of the people in the team went on to captain Wales.
3: Yeah, so who was that? So it was you, Gareth, Matthew Reese, uh, and Dwayne Peel, myself. Yeah, yeah so it's not Wales bad. I think there uh, were a few other internationals. I think I think Andrew Lloyd might have played and a couple of others. So yeah, it, it does
2: tell you what kind of a young player George Smith must have been.
3: He was unbelievable, honestly, in that game. Like he was, uh, he just kept. No, he was obviously renowned for like turning ball over, yeah. and he just kept. He's, every time he took a ball, and he'd steal it, and then he, there's really quick fallback. Well, he's and, the and, model for <laughs> the Pococks and stuff, and yeah, still yeah. doing it. For, yeah, for, absolutely absolutely he was brilliant For, for yeah, Australia so. now um i was a ma- bit of a shock as well to lose like that i didn't but if they deserved it
2: <laughs> you made your you made your uh, debut against georgia uh, yeah. in 1999 um in a floodlit match uh, but that was uh, that year i guess you were still more involved with uh, the welsh under 19 team because there was a welsh under 19 world cup um, where Wales did fantastically well. Tell us about your memories of that.
3: Yeah, that was a really uh, special tournament. So obviously, you got all these guys, got all this ambition as young players and stuff. And then that was sort of the first time we sort of taste. I don't know a little bit of uh, of the big time or high profile or whatever. It was it was unbelievable. So the first match we played in the Junior World Cup was against England. Um, at the, it was in Wales, wasn't it? Yeah, Western it was hosted in Wales. Yes, yeah. so it was at the Knoll in, in Neath. Neath yeah. and I think uh, we played them. Um, and um, we won, I think, quite convincingly. 39-7. Like, yeah, yeah, something like that. And we yeah, so we played really well. Um, and there was, like, say there was a crowd of, like, 3,000 watching yeah. us, um, which is, like, pretty amazing. Um, and then we won that game. And, obviously, I think it might have been on t- television as well. And we won, and they sort of really got, like, uh, people were like, oh, wow, this is a-, a good side. And we played in Bridgend in the next game against Argentina. And we won that game as well. 29-5, we well. yeah. Yeah, and, and during this time, we started to have, like, loads of, like, uh, so we stayed in hotels about a 12-day tournament so like uh, that was uh, a special times as well but then we had like sort of um a real momentum going behind us after winning those two games and then the the third game we played against africa semi-final in the brewery yeah. field there in the semi-final and it was i think it was a sellout in Bridgend. Yeah. and the atmosphere the club grounds in wales were well, they're all quite small and quite compact and you Close get like, 10 pitch, 12 thousand yeah. and it was like an unbelievable atmosphere and it was as in as a so it was, I think I was like 17 or 18 then, and it was just absolutely incredible and really special. And we played and we drew 10 over South Africa um, and there was some strange rule. And <laughs> I think they must have made it up because we were the home side. I remember when I played for South and Brits was playing for... Wow, it was playing for South Africa, and he still he was. I remember him saying to me that he was still like it was a ridiculous rule. I can't understand. I've got it here in front of me.
2: I, yeah. I, I got the newspaper <laughs> report. The game yeah. ended ten ten. Wales qualified for the final as their kick had been a penalty, while South Africa's was a drop goal. yeah
3: And I was because I think it was like in, with the intention of rewarding fair play. Obviously, with the intention of slightly... rewarding the home
2: team. It looks like yeah, to yeah, me. yeah, that's what it
3: was. Yeah, definitely. But I, I didn't mind. It was you played the... New Zealand in the final. And played New Zealand in the final, which was a game. Okay, was a bit like an Australia game. It was a bit of a chasing experience. In terms of like they were just like they were like it was like men against boys. We were really tired after the three three tough games. Um I think it was about three or four days later. Um and uh, and they uh we played against New Zealand. They had an unbelievable team. So Jerry Collins was playing for them, uh, and Richie McCaw in the back row, and there were others as well. But then there was like Aaron Major and Ricky Flutie. I think were they maybe ten and twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there might have been a couple of other future All Blacks as well. Um, I don't like to see that. I don't want to see nil in any in any
2: rugby union score. But there's nil yeah, against yeah, Wales. Yeah,
3: there was a, they they smashed us. I remember the first time uh, running up trying to tackle Jerry Collins, and he was he had a big reputation because I think Wales schools had played against him in New Zealand a few years before, and he was like unbelievable and he played in that game. And I remember me and the Open South flank, a guy called Tyron Morris going up to try and tackle him. And he just smashed us both back. We both came flying off and he was, just, he was uh, an incredible player.
2: Yeah, and you're starting to make um, a, a progress there this time after, after the uh, under-19s um, with Ponty you got a new contract for the uh, – initially, it was going to be for the <laughs> glorious sum of £3,000, not a week – yeah.
3: A year. Yeah, it was quite funny. So it was uh I we went in to get a contract. I was just I was just glad to sign, so I just signed it, but then Kerry Sweeney, who was a uh, bit uh cheekier than me if you like, he went he went in and said, I'm not I'm not I can't live on three thousand pounds, I want more money mm-hmm. and he he ended up getting bumped up. I think he ended up getting some like five thousand pounds in a car. And I think mm-hmm. we, for fairness they said that my contract should go up as well. So I went up for five to five thousand pounds but didn't have a you car. You should have so given Kerry so
2: half that money. I should definitely <laughs> give him a little bit there. <laughs> oh. At a club level, and we'll get on to your international career in the next session, let's just say that you're obviously not just a good player yourself, but the Pontypridd team you're in is really doing well because by the total turn of the century, they've got a very good team. 2001-2002, you win the Welsh Cup um, and... And and almost won the Parker Pen, which was the uh, the European t- trophy as well.
3: Yeah, the Europeans are European, the second tier European, yeah, the Challenge yeah. Cup sort of thing. So yeah, well, ha- was very similar parallels to to what happened with Wales later on in terms of coming into like a team that so Pontypridd had been had been a superb side within Welsh club rugby and European Legendary, rugby, and yeah. I think about 1999, I think uh, a load of players. Uh, left so they likes it so Neil Jenkins who was a real talisman he left and um, Martin Williams went and David James went so they were left with like maybe an Asian team that had had sort of the the major some of the major players taken out of it. So we were struggling a little bit, um, but then a group of youngsters came in. So it was like myself, Kerry Sweeney, Gareth Jenkins, Matthew Reese, sort of, Robert Sedoli. They signed a guy called John Bryant, who was a like, great player. Um, so they signed a group of players, and we had like a couple of seasons where we did okay, um, just ticking along. And we'd got experience, but at the start of that that season, 2001-2, we were really struggling. And Richie Collins was the coach, um, and then uh, they appointed a new director of rugby called Clive Jones, who was. Um, in terms of what he Jones did. Jones the Rugby. Yeah, in <laughs> terms of uh, what he did at pont He did a great job. Um, and then he brought in Lynn Howells as a coach who was really influential on, on us as players.
2: You mentioned um, a whole group of them, but actually the, uh, we've done the, the, the homework for you. Um, of the people who came into that side, ten of you would go on to win Welsh caps. I mean, yeah. so that's an incredible influx of talent.
3: Yeah, it was really incredible. And I think the thing I remember, Dale McIntosh, in, in that run to the Park of Penfai, we played like Saracens in the quarter in the quarter final, who had like a star-studded team. And I, think, and I think he got asked the question, how are you going to cope against a team full of superstars? And he, his response was, we've also got a team of superstars. It's just no one realises it yet, which was a great response and proved to be fairly prophetic. So it was, um, uh, and, and that was the sort of attitude we had. I think the people that were there, the, the older players, so the likes of Paul John, Dale McIntosh, who were hugely influential in terms of setting the tone and what, what he was going to be like. So they were just showing you that you could, you could you could beat anyone if you were on your mind. If you just got stuck in and had a go, you could beat anyone and that was the attitude we had. And sometimes we did and sometimes we didn't, but they always tried to instill that you had that attitude and you fought hard and worked hard and try and see what you can achieve and don't don't be overhauled by people's reputations.
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.
2: Uh, Michael, having uh, made the name for yourself uh, as one of the top emerging players in Welsh rugby, you made further progress being selected for the Welsh A-side for going on to win your first international cap um, against South Africa in Bloemfontein. First of all, let's just say this was no ordinary cap. Do you still get an actual
3: cap? Yeah, still get a cap, Wow! Yeah.
2: And what a kind of what kind of feeling is that for a, a young Welsh boy?
3: Yeah, it was amazing. I think, um, obviously, I've been dreaming about, and about playing for Wales and training and working hard to try and get to that point for, I don't know, maybe... 15 16 years something like that. that was a big achievement like i remember when I, I got my first i was awarded my first cap steve hansen came up to me a couple of days before the in the gym, yeah and he just came up and he said are you expecting that like, to be a big uh, deal and he just said you're playing on saturday and that was it and he left the room so that was just that was his way of uh, of saying it.
2: um it, it was you were the thousandth player to represent wales yeah,
3: yeah which made it made it special and um so i got presented with a a. a uh, boot um, uh, special like commemorative boot, and like obviously had more press coverage and stuff about, so it made it a bit more of a a big deal maybe, and um, yeah, and that's that whole season. It was we on the back of winning the Welsh Cup and playing in some really big matches for Pontypridd and playing some great rugby, and uh, yeah, got picked for Wales. And it was a group of us. I think it was like five Pontypridd players went on the tour. You lost thirty-four
2: uh, nineteen to, to yeah. uh, South African Bloemfontein. Yeah. Uh, have you got any memories of the actual game?
3: Yeah, I think my, going into the game for me personally, it was I. D- I didn't want to let myself down. I didn't. I was never phased about people always say but oh what if you're one cap one day and I thought oh I don't I don't really care. I just wanna if you get that one cap I'd be really proud and if that's all I have then I'd be very privileged to have that. But I just wanted to make sure I didn't let myself down. And I played um I played pretty well. I was happy with my performance and on the reflection with Steve Hansen so he was he said they you did really well like, keep it going or whatever. We played it, we had a young side, we tried to play some great rugby, we really moving the ball, played some good stuff and I think for Wales at that time, losing 34-19 to Staff again, we were right in the game until maybe the last twenty, I think it wasn't and the worst result you were having. It wasn't at that time. the worst result, and I think people were sort of could see a little bit. But I felt quite optimistic about the way we performed. Um, so so there were positives to take out, but uh, yeah, it was a and it was a, the tour itself was it was an amazing experience. Yeah,
2: and uh, the the next game that you you also played in the second game, um, it was nineteen eight. These are you know yeah. th- things are picking up, and of course it's one of the themes of this program. And we'll see how you might say because of you, but at the time <laughs> that you came into the Welsh team, they were doing terribly and gradually we'll hear the story of how they eventually win um, you know a Grand Slam in the Six Nations also as I said threaded in throughout this is is your family life because you're one of those people who's had their kids young you're still a very young man now looking across the the table at you Um, your first child Ellie came along it um, was it was a, it was a, a difficult uh, birth. I think she was overdue and all the rest of it. But it also coincided with Pontypry. Then a training camp. It wasn't quite as joyous for you
3: as I think as it might have been. No, no. It was a bit. Um, it, Ellie being born was was incredible, course, obviously, and everything. But it course. was it was a very difficult time. My wife was uh, had like a, a, a very long labour and uh, she had to be induced. And also, it wasn't a very good time. And Ellie had some difficulties and stuff for uh, the first sort of ten days. And they weren't sure how things were going to go. Um, and at the time, there was a camp with Ponterpreet, and it was just badly managed by the management and stuff. And me being a young man, I probably didn't deal with it. I w- wasn't as strong, maybe, as I, w- as I should have been. interested. So look, I'm not going away. I'm staying here and doing that. And then while I was away, my daughter had a, a fit. And then it was just uh, very worrying. And she had to go into special baby care and stuff. So it was just, obvious- I-, I wish I'd been stronger at the time. and said, look, I'm not going to the camp. But you're obviously worried about... Your future and worried sure. about your contract situation and things like that. So it was just I just felt it was like badly managed and sort of, sort of it felt a bit disappointing to be treated like that when you've worked really hard and been part of a of a good team. I wish I'd just uh, gone and done that. That was the way I should have been. But um, yeah, it's all it all worked out. Did it affect did it
2: affect your your relationship with Pontypridd?
3: Yeah, that no my the, the feeling for the club or anything, but certainly in terms of um, like with the the coaches and the people that were sort of involved in that decision, yeah, it did affect. Uh, how I felt about the end probably influenced me. Um, was part of the reason why I went to the Dragons at the end of that season as well. yeah. which will come on to a little later
2: in my sporting life. Um, then we get to the autumn. You know, you are now in the Welsh team, yeah. and we get to the autumn internationals of two thousand and two. Um, uh, and and an incident that that's um it gets described as not the veil of De Morgan, but the jail of De Morgan. I <laughs> mean, yeah. um, maybe it was made more of it in the press than it was. Well, t- tell us about that. This is again Steve Hanson. He wants yeah. all the players to stay in a hotel. Um,
3: but uh, there was a, a great deal of how can I put it, uh, escape bids and leakage. Yeah, I think um, obviously it's just one I think Steve Hansen came in, tried to you trying to develop a culture, and he did it in South Africa, and he was a real stickler. I remember like in South Africa, like we do an ice bath and stuff, and he sort of they'd only just sort of come in maybe for a, a year or two. We're doing that, and Gethin Jenkins didn't uh, didn't do his ice bath, and then Steve Hansen came on the bus and said you didn't do your ice bath, and he like admitted it, and then he made him go back and i think it was him and martin madden had to go back and do like 3 minutes in the ice bath because he tried the cheats we were saying the team's we were trying to create the culture and stuff so i think for me it was like it was <laughs> i think for like david james obviously got caught out and stuff with that but it was like a bit of a ridiculous situation because most of the most people lived like 10 15 minutes away well you were literally so, local yeah, to the so was i was like, was like <laughs> 5 minutes from the hotel so it was ridiculous so like and it was like i remember like you in the night, I wanted to go home and see my wife and see my my, my daughter and stuff. Oh, cool. So you'd go you'd go home. I you'd go home and you'd be sneaking back, just like terrified that you were gonna get caught and get chucked out to the Welsh team. Um, and David James obviously unfortunate, and then Steve Hansen, I don't know, he's probably a bit of a maybe he didn't fancy David James, so he made it a made a statement by by dropping him and stuff. but I mean, Steve
2: is uh, yeah. a clever man because David James said that he'd only gone to the car to get his Walkman. Yeah, and Hansen that went and felt the, yeah, the, a, the exhaust pipe.
3: A former police officer, yeah. <laughs> oh, but, uh, is that it? Yeah, that's okay. what he was, yeah. So I think uh, that's how he managed Too to Too smart for the average rugby player then. Definitely, yeah. But <laughs> I think it was obviously unfortunate as well because David James was a great player and it, 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 it sort of maybe soured his international career a bit and it was probably a little bit unfair. And I think, like thinking back as well, when we had a team meeting and stuff, I think... It probably within. I think actually in the team meeting we had to announce that David James wasn't uh, in the squad. I think it was a player missing who was at home at that time because an unscheduled meeting. So I think there might have been a player missing in the meeting at the time when they were <laughs> announcing because he'd he'd gone home because people obviously uh, felt that they that that's what they wanted to do. So
2: and I might just finish this section. I will want to get through this as quickly as possible. The 2003 Six Nations Championship. Wales lost their opening game in Rome to okay. Italy. By thirty two points to twenty. Uh, you were dropped after that game. Yeah. They went on to lose every one of the games for their yeah. first and presumably only ever Six Nations whitewash. Obviously think, if you'd played this wouldn't have happened. Uh, but this uh, yeah. is this is terrible <laughs> stuff.
3: Yeah, no, I think I played against Italy and didn't play didn't play very well. We were quite poorly prepared. I can remember at the time the players feeling like we were try- Steve Hansen was trying to do stuff with the line out and stuff and it um, was very, very different, and we did, went in. We didn't have a very good lineup, and obviously, to beat Italy, you had to be able to to operate there. So I think everyone was a bit like, "What's, like, what's he doing, Steve?" Hansen he couldn't see what he was trying to achieve. And uh, yeah, it was a really, really horrible defeat. You lose like I lose to Italy. I think it might have been the first time. Mm-hmm. Certainly, the fir- I think it was one of the first time in the Six Nations Wales had lost to Italy. Um, so we feel really embarrassed and like gutted. In that game as well, you could see glimpse I th- I'd love to see that game again. I think we scored like maybe two like unbelievable tries, like length of the field, like multiple phases, um, with some great passing, which would have been if you compare if you just shown the try and compared it to a try we scored in the Six Nations, it would have been you could have seen the parallels between the, the two. But um, yeah, it was a it was a horrible moment. I got dropped after that game, um, and then and just had to work really hard to try and fight my way back into. The the squad. We need to continue to talk about the down before we get to the up. I mean, we're
2: going to talk about a terrible run for the Welsh team before that, but also the club rugby in in, in Wales in 2002-2003 very different different from the other Celtic nations. Ireland had the four provinces, Scotland had three franchises, and Wales still had the old club system. Now, I'm old enough to remember when they used to be on grandstand Michael, they used to read out all the rugby results from Wales, and these places I would never have heard of, Aberavon you know, play and indeed Pontypridd used to come on and they'd be playing these rugby matches. They reorganised
3: it um, so that
2: the and a lot of these great clubs disappeared from our sight. How did that feel? How
3: did it go? Yeah, it was horrible. Uh, I and mean, I think at Pontypridd as well, we'd sort of built up to to become. Like uh, a pretty strong team with a lot of young, good young players, and it felt like it was a real—we were building something for the future to become even better, and hopefully, like start to become uh, a force, a, a bit of a force in Europe. Um. So yeah, it was a massive change. Um. And and, and really disappointing. Obviously, growing up wanting to play for Ponte and then that, that sort of lost, and I think. Um, to be fair, the guy uh, so David Moffat was sort of the instigator of doing that, um, and I think they'd been spoken about in Welsh rugby for a long time. And they just sort of by doing that, they'd sort of diminished um, what Welsh club rugby was 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 about as well in some ways.
2: I should just just let, to let people know what actually happened. Um, was that Swansea and Neath became the Ospreys, um, Newport and Ebervale merged to become what's now the Newport gwen Dragons, yeah. um, Pontypridd merged with Bridgend to become the Celtic Warriors, um, and Cardiff remained as a, as a standalone club as did uh, Clenethley. Yeah. But I thought perhaps then that it meant uh, it meant that perhaps the club you grew up at Pontypridd had disappeared, but the, but the village still has. Uh, uh, you're telling me a very thriving rugby club yes
3: yeah, Pont de is a town it's a town, so town surrounded yeah. by villages and stuff but then uh, yeah, so they've got a great rugby club now they're really successful they, there's a Welsh Premiership and they still have a Welsh Cup for the clubs and um, Pont de have won the double like a few times and they've won countless league titles um, and they, they, they're doing really well and they've restructured the club and they, they're running it um, in a really really impressive fashion and they get some some big crowds for the big games so they still get like three, four, five thousand for a big game so yeah so it's going uh, it's going pretty well
2: you went you signed for the dragons did all the Pontypridd players have to become dragons or did you get a choice what was the how did it oh, work i was a
3: really unbelievable process really when you look at it um, so the guys got He'd lined up outside the office of the coach, and the, so Lynn Howells and I think it was Clive Jones as well. And he'd go in and they'd be told, yeah, we're going to keep you on. No, we're not going to keep you on. It was like that. And people would have had like existing contracts. There was a guy called Garrett Lewis, who was from the, the same area as me, played for Wales, really talented footballer, really good player. And he was like a surprise omission. They sort of said, right, we don't want to keep you anymore. And Garrett had to go and find a contract that like, relatively short notice. It was quite uh, uh, a tough process, I think, for a lot of people and then I had a chance to uh, got offered a contract by the, the Catholic Warriors a um, little bit of talk with Cardiff and stuff and then Mike Redick, uh came in for me at, who was it, going to the, the newly formed Gwent Dragons um, and he sort of, the reason I went there in the end I suppose was because um, I felt a few times during the season for Pontapri that I got sort of like left out to the side and stuff and I felt like it was a, I wanted to go somewhere where I'd be like Hundred percent trusted and backed, and that's what Mike Ruddock offered me, sort of going to the Dragons, and I played under him for Wales A, uh, and in, and and enjoyed it. So and as it turned out, it was a great move because obviously he became the Welsh coach and was a was a and obviously continued to back me. And I think it was one of those things. So when I went to play for Wales A, um, which felt like it was a long a lot felt like a long time coming at the time. I was really when I got the, when I played for them he was the coach and for the first game against Ireland he didn't pick me because he picked someone else and said to me the reason was because that guy had performed for me previously so you want, he felt like he wanted to give mm-hmm. him a chance another opportunity which is fair enough um, but then he didn't play well in the next game he got dropped and then they picked me um, and we had a really good season with Wales A1-4-4 and Mike I think because I played well, he sort of backed me and I wanted me to be there. And then I went to the Dragons, and it was great day for that first season with him as well. We had a really good season, and uh, yeah, it was uh, it was fantastic. I mean, it's it's
2: all faded into into the mist of memory now. It's ten years ago that all this or more that all this was happening. Has it worked out? Do you think the the, the Welsh club system?
3: Uh, it, it's worked out in the sense that Wales as a national side have been more success as been as successful as they've ever been. They've obviously got a fantastic side now. The academy structure's working really well. Um, so there's, there's lots and lots of pauses about that. But I think Welsh rugby has lost a little bit of something, maybe lost a little bit of his soul. Because like I was saying, when I was growing up, you would have seen the people uh, playing for your local town side. You could really feel like a tangible affiliation to it if you like and it was re- and you see those internationals go around the, the the village or whatever and then you go to um and it'd be like a real like meet so it' be like a real social thing as well and obviously you're trying to get all the people from the regions from the the villages surrounding pontpri to go to the big town club if you like and that was that was what made it so special so I think it's lost maybe a little bit of something um West Rugby's is still strong but i'm, I'm not sure if I think in hindsight what would have been better if the regions if the clubs fed more into the regions if you like so they were like the regions were were a genuine amalgamation of clubs and and, and it's a shame that we lost those like big derbies like Swansea Glenathley Swansea Neath Pontypridd, Cardiff Newport Cardiff it was some really really big like ferocious derbies and stuff and I think Welsh rugby has lost a little bit despite being really successful since uh, the start of the regions
2: Talking about the build up to the World Cup in 2003
3: Yes the World Cup in 2003 it it was I think this was where we started to, to really build. So there was um, they had a new fitness coach, a guy called Andrew Ho, um, and uh, Scott Johnson was involved, and Steve Hansen. So those three were sort of coming together, and they were a really good uh, team together. And Clive Griffiths as well was a really good defence coach. They were all sort of working there uh, as a group. And then that pre-season, uh, we had a great preseason, trained really hard, really, really progressing, striving for that World Cup, and uh, yeah, and... and and feeling like we could go there and, and, and have a good campaign and uh, yeah, unfortunately for me I got injured um, and at the I got injured a little bit before and then I had to pull out about 2 days before we left or something which was uh, a, a pretty devastating blow but
2: I'm uh... um, just uh, and, and and not to put too fine a point on it and we'll stop talking about the run of defeats now <laughs> um, England uh, beat uh, Wales in the run up to that 2003 World Cup that was ele- the eleventh defeat on the spin for Wales. It's just not quite. It's just not a figure that makes any sense in it. And e- equally, it was it was England's fourteenth win on the trot, and of course they went on yeah. uh, to be the, the world champions. After that, in two thousand and four you were fit again i mean you're starting to have some injuries here uh, michael I mean, it's part of the story as well isn't it the yeah. fact that you you're a big long frame of a man <laughs> aren't you um, and for a, but what How tall are you 65 66 six? yeah, yeah. Um, you're, you're not you're not massively bulked out. you're not a great you're not 65 across the shoulders are you uh,
3: not not anymore no but no. oh, like I was still about uh, 17 and a half 18 stone so was, ah, yeah, just a, just a, not, a cult yeah, yeah. Yeah, cult
2: <laughs> um, what do you remember about 2004 um uh, Six Nations, because we're going to hear in the second half of the show about that amazing season. Not only did Wales win the Grand Slam in 2005 with yourself as captain, um, but that they played such amazing rugby. W- was there signs of it happening in 2004?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think in 2004, we, so we, we had to come back from the World Cup where they'd had a decent showing in the World Cup. So they got through the group and then lost to England in the quarterfinals and really challenged what was obviously a, a tremendous English side. And then starting the two thousand and four Six Nations, I'd been sort of I'd stayed home. I managed to get myself really fit um, at the Dragons and was playing some good rugby there as well. And enjoying my time at the Dragons, um, we were we had a good side there as well, and we we're, were at the top of the, the sort of Celtic League. So I was going really well. And then the start of the Six Nations, I got picked in the squad, and I think I was on the bench for the I think we played. Scotland first. Yeah. I was on the bench for that. Yeah. Then and you. Play, the and you lost. You won, you
2: beat, and then you lost to, to Ireland. Yeah. That. yeah. I was on the bench for those two games yeah.
3: and did okay. And then in between that, there was a game against Ulster, I think, for Pontypridd for uh, the Dragons. Yeah. And I had a really good game in there. I think I had man of the match and uh, maybe scored a try or something like that. Um. And then I got picked for the following game against France. Which um, in, uh, which which good judges
2: who I've spoken to in the run up to preparing for this program tell me it was your best ever performance for the Wales? Yeah, I
3: had a, I had, a pretty, I had a good game, I had an amazing game that day in some ways because you just uh, everything was going for me. So I just uh, I was calling the line-outs and playing second row, which obviously I was probably more of a number eight, but mm-hmm. I played second row in that game. I was calling line-outs. every time I called the ball to me, I won it. Um, I was winning a clean eye ball. Caught the kickoffs. I was every like I run running a line. I would just go through, and I was offloading. So I had a really really good game. It's just for me. I think it was unfortunate that we didn't manage to to win the game. But I can remember playing in that game and really feeling. Probably for the maybe for the first time feeling really at home in international rugby and feeling like I could really make a difference. I think it was probably a little bit to do with my conditioning. I was in really I was really fit at the time and just the style of rugby that we were playing as well. So under Steve Hansen and Scott Johnson and Andrew Ho, I used you see him as a triumvirate if you like. But the way we were training, we just trained unbelievable. They just brought the best out of my skills. The end of that tournament, uh, Steve Hansen was
2: replaced by your mentor, if that's the right word, yeah. Mike Ruddock, and we'll hear more about that um, in just a few moments' time here. On my sporting life as we head into one of the great stories from Welsh and European rugby, what do you remember about the lead up to the Six Nations uh, in two thousand and
4: five? Yeah, I
3: think it probably started. So um, Mike took us on tour to Argentina and South Africa, mm. which was an okay tour. We didn't, we did, uh, we beat Argentina, lost one, and won one, and then lost to South Africa. Um, but then we uh, we came back for the autumn internationals, and we had a great autumn international series. We, I think, we lost to South Africa by two points and played okay. And then we played um, New Zealand and that was the was uh, talking earlier about the Millennium Stadium being half empty and that game against New Zealand was unbelievable New Zealand were a brilliant team and we performed at such a, a high level and um, we lost 26-25 a game we probably should have won there Joe Rockathoco Co- was playing for them on the wing scored two unbelievable tries which, which turned the game for them but it was a uh, it was a great game for us to stand up there with the the best team in world rugby uh it was amazing and um yeah and that sort of sent us into the six nations
2: um you mentioned um that the you've been away on the tour in Argentina and South Africa you were injured for South Africa but you did get to meet Nelson Mandela
3: yeah yeah we got to meet Nelson Mandela yeah, which was uh, so he got introduced us for the game so i just shook his hand and there was a photo um which i've got somewhere of me shaking his hand it was obviously a pretty incredible moment he's a like tremendous statesman and stuff and um yeah just uh, oh. It was pretty incredible to get to to get to meet him and shake his hand
2: um after returning from South Africa um you got married to Lucy, who we heard about in the French lesson a little earlier yeah. on, yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah we had a great we had a really nice wedding we got married in miskin manor which is just off the m4 which, like you say you would have passed a few times yeah. on your way to, to get a ferry um yeah but it, a beautiful hotel and we had a we had a great day lots of friends and family and uh i sang the gambler again that night as well so it was uh
2: do you know any think, other songs uh, Michael, that's the only
3: song i know so it's every year the tune you've just got to say it as well so you haven't got to do too much singing so it suits my voice but uh no we had a great day and um it was uh my daughter was there as a a flower girl and stuff as well, which is quite uh, quite funny and quite nice. So, yeah, yeah. it's good. good.
2: Um, so we get to the, the, the 2005 uh Six Nations. How did you get to be? Well, we, we'll talk first about the, the, the game you played against England because I guess this is where people start to take this team very seriously. And for a start, for a nation which prides itself on two things one, playing rugby, two, beating England. It's been six years since uh, since you've managed to get the better of England.
3: Yeah, and I think what happened with the, the, the worst team as well, we'd sort of been getting close. So in the World Cup, they challenged New Zealand and they challenged England. So starting to get to the top table. And then in the Six Nations in 2004, we were close to England, close to France. And they were the top teams at the time and Then the... the autumn close to New Zealand close to South Africa so really starting to get somewhere but then we sort of finally cracked it if you like against England winning that game a really tight game but winning an 11-9 and I think one of the things that was really pleasing in that game as well towards the end of the game and we had to see out the game we didn't panic we didn't like try and kick the ball away we just kept playing our rugby we had, we had good phases of play and just kept the ball and looked really composed. I
2: mean just to remind me about that game you trailed uh, eight nines very tight very very uh, stern game of rugby after Charlie Hodgson kicked a penalty for England with five minutes left. And then Gavin Henson scored a a penalty from fully 50 yards away. A, it was a brilliant kick. Gavin is a a funny old phenomenon now, isn't he? Because here he is, very important. He's a brilliant player, but he's become kind of labelled now as a a kind of showbiz clown, hasn't he? Yeah,
3: I think people sometimes uh, forget what he has achieved in the game as well. I think when you look at what he's done, he was like uh, World Player of the Year, I think, as a a World Young Player of the Year as well, as an under-20 or whatever, which is an incredible achievement. He won two Grand Slams, I think, for Wales. He won the Celtic League with... Um, the Ospreys and he's played in France, England and and in Wales as well so he's, at, he's even though he's done all those other things and maybe that has detracted from his rugby somewhat he's still had a tremendous career and been a, a real top player so I think when people say he hasn't fulfilled his potential I think uh, he he, he, still, he hasn't had a bad time, and obviously doing some of the stuff he's done, he's had a he's had a pretty good life. So do you
2: do you think if he hadn't been Mister Charlotte Church, people would take him more seriously?
3: I don't know. I think I think as a rugby player, he was just he was just as a personality. I think his personality was maybe a little bit. Um, like he was either like incredibly meticulous and like the best professional or he just go off the wall and be and be gone. So he's just he just I think it's just his personality and he's obviously in fairness to him. He's had he's done what he wanted to do and he's probably had a, a great time Is doing it bloke? as well. So Um He's uh he's a uh, he's a funny one guy I and mean, he can be he can be great at, at really, really nice guy at times and then he's quite quiet and keeps to himself and I think he's got his own circle of friends. So he was always like quite there. like my experience of him was generally mm-hmm. he was quite quiet and professional and he had a few Moments where you go a little bit off the wall, but pretty. Uh, it's all right.
2: Well, that amazing kick um, from the halfway Bob probably inside the at uh, the half, um, gives uh, Wales that victory over England. Um, it's, it's it's easy, Michael, to pick out one game or another and say that was a, that was a big moment. Was that a very significant win? Do you think
3: it was a massive win? Yeah, it was uh, it was huge because, like I say, we just we cracked that. We'd beaten a big team all of a sudden, and that just gives you that little bit more belief, a little bit more. Um, Confidence in what you're capable of as a team, and it was uh, yeah, it was a hard fought win, and we had to do lots of good things. Some things, some parts of it were grind, some parts of it were were great. And it was just uh, it was it was brilliant. It was really nice. I can remember after the match walking out of the stadium, it was me and Lucy, and we were like we were on our own. I, I was speaking to Gareth Edwards after the game, is like uh, sort of first time I'd really like spoken to him, and he was saying that's a, a really significant win, great together, that sort of monkey off your back if you like, and hopefully you can go on and be successful. And uh, yeah, it was great to. To be, talk- to be talking to people like that and, to, yeah. and to, to get a little bit of advice. So, yeah, it was pretty special.
2: You then beat Italy comfortably at the Flamini by 38 points to eight, six tries for Wales. Yeah. So, obviously, uh, um, the, the, the flowing rugby, of which you were a part, yeah. you know a back who could make a pass, who could see a break, um, was obviously coming. And then, uh, of course, one of the most traditionally difficult fixtures in any team's calendar, you had to go to the Stade de France. Tell us about the game against France.
3: Yeah, that was a big uh, crunch game, if you like. I think if we uh, obviously if we could win that game, that was going to like set us up to the midpoint of the championship, set us up to to go on and be successful. But I can remember for myself just being in that game. Uh, I was I, I felt I was really focused. And I, I, I in, in the in the first half um, we were really struggling in the scrum. So as a number eight, I had to like pick up every every like every scrum, be just to try and keep the ball. Um, I managed and it did that, and did that quite well. Um, and I said I remember saying to Adam Jones said, Ad, what's happening with the scrum can we can we sort that out and he told me in no uncertain terms I'm getting flipping stuff it's hard, it's hard work <laughs> you know what I mean so he put me in my place he's normally really quiet Adam so uh, yeah but I was just picking the ball up and keeping it but I at half time I sort of I, I went in feeling confident and I think it's sometimes an individual thing You, f- I felt like it was okay I didn't feel like we were really struggling in the game even though we clearly were on the scoreboard as a player I felt that we were in the game if we could just do things a little bit more correctly.
2: You went in at half-time, as you say, 15-6 down. So still in the game, but behind, yeah. a, I guess, a good French team uh, in France. And then, of course, Gareth Thomas hurt his thumb and yeah. um, broke it. And That
3: sounds like it's a very small injury when you yeah. say you put it. Like no, that. no, it was he quite broke serious. his thumb. Yeah. <laughs> I think if
2: you're playing rugby, I mean, I've met Gareth Thomas. Yeah. It, it, believe me, yeah. uh, a, a, a sore thumb would not stop him yeah, playing, it definitely would it? Yeah, He's a pretty yeah. tough player. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, and you got the captain's armband.
3: Yeah so I've been vice captain and stuff so it was it didn't feel like I think like if you said say that it's like so obviously you got a, a great magnitude or whatever being captain of your country but in a way it happened for me it was sort of just like it was just the next thing and that, that's what happens a lot of the time you don't get a chance to, to think about this. so and like I say I was feeling confident at half time even though we hadn't played well as a team uh, for myself I felt confident and I felt in the game and I felt that we could do alright if we just kept the ball and I, I guess like that confidence I had like uh, you just just try and reflect that to, to other people but the, the, all everyone stepped up and it was a great second half uh,
2: in, during which Martin uh, Williams scored uh, twice uh, from yeah. the back row for uh, yeah. for Wales and uh, with the score on 18-18 Simon Jones kicked a penalty and a late drop goal as Wales held off the intense late French pressure to win and when you've beaten England and France you must know that there's a very, I mean obviously the Italy game as well but when you've beaten England and France You must have thought, wow! Not only we are in a chance with the championship here, but the first Welsh Grand Slam for a quarter of a century. I I think since those legendary. I mean, they were ridiculously legendary. Yeah, yeah,
3: absolutely. Yeah, I think sometimes when you're in the the bubble of being in a professional team, I think sometimes that um, you you don't get caught up in anything because the Six Nations is so short. It doesn't hit you the speculation and stuff. So, like I know, like when you talk about Premier League campaigns and football and stuff, and because it's such a long season, you have got so long to think about it. I think with us in the Six Nations, it didn't. Although clearly you're in a good position, I can never really remember thinking, "Oh my God, we can win the Six Nations." I just sort of you're just moving on to the next thing. So you you go back from France or whatever, then you 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 recovering, you're getting on, getting prepared for the next game. So it just sort of um, keeps moving. And the atmosphere in the camp was brilliant. It was really relaxed. We used to play football before. Um, uh, before before training and stuff, and it was just and loads of touch rugby. It was just really relaxing. we were just having a great time and playing good rugby.
2: Okay, the good rugby continues. but now counting
3: down the games. Yeah. Um, with the penultimate game of the of
2: the tournament for for you Wales, uh, you went to Murrayfield and ran up a well a record win against Scotland. But yeah. you as captain,
3: yeah, yeah. So I was captain. So I thought that week, you were obviously a bit more focused. But being captain at that time as well it's really easy because we're riding the crest of a wave everyone just asks you nice questions everyone's just really pleased to speak to you everyone's just like hey brilliant everything's great so it wasn't a did difficult... you
2: like doing all those press conferences
3: it, well you, you do them anyway as a player obviously you get a little bit more focused as a captain but when everything's going great it's brilliant it's the best job in the world because everyone thinks you you go oh, "Why? how are you doing so well and all that and also I guess it's just a nice feel to it obviously I experienced a slightly different side to it like a couple of years late or a year or so late as captain but Doing that Six Nations, it was amazing. We went to Scotland. We were really confident. Scotland had a bit of a difficult time, I think, with their coach. And, yeah, we just uh, we, we started 100 miles an hour and just managed to see them off fairly easily. Michael, we left the last section
2: with one game to go in the 2005 Six Nations. Wales have won their first five. Then they uh, last three games have been away from home. Then you return to the Principality for the game against Ireland. Wales on the cusp of their first Grand Slam for twenty-seven years. Ireland still in a chance of the triple crown. Huge game.
3: Yeah, absolutely huge. It was a, a massive build-up to the game, and I think uh, just before, just during the week, it was just there's a bit like uh, winning. Winning my first cap just felt like just the magnitude of the game. Um, trying obviously not to get caught up in that, but just trying to think, just try and perform, just don't let ourselves down, make sure we perform on the day, and if we win, we win. And if we don't, we don't. you Just got to be able to take it. But I felt that if we just went in there and just tried to play as well as we could. And we and we'd be able to to get it
2: i think for every rugby player of your generation there's that image of the england players going up to scotland for the grand slam match and david soul's team walking out and all the
3: rest of it yeah
2: it's one thing being the best team you have to do it on the pitch on the though day, don't you? yeah
3: on, on our last day as well yeah and i think for us as well as the west team in some senses we would have probably come from from nowhere i don't think there would have been many people predicting that we'd win the six nations i think probably ireland uh france and england all at, uh Ranked ahead of us and stuff, but we, uh, yeah, we just and it was just it was brilliant as well. We just the way the week was managed was great. I think we played on a Sunday in Scotland and it was a Saturday in uh, in Cardiff. So we just sort of that week it was just quite low key. We just like I say, just having loads of fun, playing a bit of football, playing a bit of touch rugby, making sure we done our prep right, and people like Robert Sidoli really instrumental in making sure our lineup was like spot on. Um, and then yeah, and just going in and performing and uh, and giving everything we got. Ireland was always going to be a tough match for us because they'd sort of in one of those teams where we just hadn't performed against them we just thought sort of, they just kept beating us and and over say that three year period four year period before with that team and sort of been together they just kept beating us giving us a couple of like uh like big big defeats in our, in Dublin and stuff so it was a tough game but... obviously
2: i follow Irish rugby as closely as i can and i remember the game very very clearly the first half um and particularly that Tom Shanklin, uh, the, the Welsh player, who, you know, let's be fair, Tom's not a superstar. Yeah. He had absolutely murdered Brian O'Driscoll. Yeah, that took, set the tone for the game. Yeah,
3: definitely. He was like, Brian O'Driscoll's obviously like one of the all time well, greats uh, and stuff, yeah. Absolutely. And then uh, Tom Shanklin was amazing that day. He really like sort of just closed him down, put him under a lot of pressure. Brian O'Driscoll making uncharacteristic mistakes and getting frustrated. And yeah, just a uh, tremendous performance from Tom Shanklin. But I think it was one of those, everyone just did a little bit. And so you make sure you win the lineup ball, make sure you make your tackles, like work with the ball. And we played some good rugby as well and i think the try that we scored to to sort of um to, to seal the game if you like was a was a, a the epitome of that sort of play
2: when you hear that what does it make you feel like
3: yeah it's amazing i think uh, i hadn't seen it and i watched it but it was like on espn classic or something and i think they saw the game and it just made it hairs in the back of my neck stand up and because i think when you when you play in sport you sort of you don't comprehend what what it means and stuff and you sort of lose that sense of being a fan a little bit and i think um there were a few things that happened around that game, and um, that really made you sort of realise that at the time. But then reflecting back, and that makes it really special. It was so driving in and uh, Millennium Stadium in Cardiff is right in the middle of town, on the river, beautiful yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, so it's uh, amazing yeah, But you drive in on the bus, and you drive in sort of through the main streets of Cardiff to 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 get to the entrance. And that day. It was that it was unbelievable. It was just like um so all the outside Cardiff Castle, it was and it was a beautiful day as well. It was packed out. Um, all the way through the streets, everyone was stopping and clapping the bus. And you just as you were driving the bus, just thinking, oh and you just you just like excited to play and excited to be there. And then afterwards, um, obviously the, the celebrations and stuff in the stadium. And then I think they showed us a video, so the guy who used to do the, the video analysis, Alan Carter, um and they had clips of people the troops in Basra and i think there was a video of them I and they were watching the game and all going absolutely ballistic because we won the six nations and i think like you don't realize that that's the effect that the actions of us as a collective as a team uh, has that effect on people and can bring such joy to people And that's what is really special and to be able to see that happening is uh, it makes you like pretty emotional and feel pretty proud of, of of your efforts
2: you're right to feel emotional and proud there was one moment you still had one captain's duty to do uh <laughs> to go and lift the the trophy and the six nations trophy um obviously the, the world the world the spotlight of the entire world was on you michael owen why didn't you take off that stupid scrum right. hat?
3: yeah it's a shocker um if it what happened so i never wore a scrum cap but i had a uh, cauliflower year um so my year was like flaring all the time so i started wearing one um and I'd never worn before so at the end but at, after every single match in the Six Nations I'd done the same thing so I did at the end of the match rather than like taking it off and putting it in my shorts or something I would just like undo the strap yeah. so it's like dangling down so on that day that's what I did and I think that just sort of shows as well how much like you're not conscious of the or oh, I wasn't conscious of the Public, the fact that millions of people all over the world are watching me with a stupid scrum cap on my head. So, uh, yeah, it just, you just weren't conscious of it. You just focused on the rugby and enjoying that. And then, obviously, afterwards, you could sort of see that...
2: Uh, <laughs> well, your parents in the stadium that night? Um, that
3: yeah, my parents were there. My uncle went. And my uncle had been, like... Uh, he'd had, like, some heart trouble and stuff and hadn't drunk for ages. But he, had, he took a drink that day and stuff. And uh, um, it was a really nice moment, actually. When we won the Six Nations, the, the wives and girlfriends... Um, area sort of is like directly above like in the second tier stand like I can remember looking at Lucy and just feeling like it was a really nice moment to sort of share that together and like she'd obviously helped me loads and stuff so that was a nice sort of uh a nice moment and also I think at the time I just felt I remember feeling like I did it obviously felt, felt absolutely delighted, but it was more you were like uh, a relief as well. Do you know what I mean? Just thinking, oh, a satisfaction rather, not relief, satisfaction of what we'd achieved and where we'd come from as a group and all the hard work you put in and the early morning sessions and all that stuff. And it was a real uh, tremendous sort of thing as a team to go through.
2: So you're the captain of the most important Welsh rugby or the most important Welsh sports team for a quarter of a century. Uh, as I say, it's a global sport now, and so everyone knows who you are, Michael Owen, and what you look like and all the rest of it, but you're brought down to earth the following day.
3: Yeah, yeah, I went to get uh, fish and chips from the chip shop and uh, the woman said, oh, did you enjoy the game yesterday? And I said, yeah, it was good. And she said, oh, where did you watch it <laughs> 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 So uh, yeah, she didn't have a clue. Uh, she probably still doesn't, does she? So uh, but I was like, yeah, I was there.
2: Well, it was an amazing <laughs> moment. And it's been a pleasure actually sharing that moment with you, watching you, listen to the commentary. It was yeah. really, really, I mean, the tears are in my eyes, never yeah. mind uh, yours. Let's uh, get, uh, be joined now by somebody who had an important part to play in lots of your career. He coached you at a uh, club level, at a junior international level, of course, was the manager of the Welsh team the day of that famous triumph. So, good evening to Mike Ruddock. Hello, Mike.
4: Hey, Danny.
3: How are you, Mike? You're good, thanks, Mike. Yourself? Everything's good, mate. Everything's good.
2: Listen, uh, Mike uh, Mike Ruddock, in this case, um, talk to us about what kind of a player uh, Michael Owen was and why he became so important to that great Welsh team.
4: Yeah, well, I remember seeing Michael first playing for Pontypridd as a real young young man. I, I actually I remembered his dad playing rugby.
2: Wow! Uh,
4: believe it or not, many years ago, and um, I remember Michael then bursting onto the scene uh, with Pontypridd as a, a fine young player, in amongst a number of other you know fine young players that Pontypridd were uh, producing at that time. And uh, I was lucky enough then to get the opportunity to sort of work with Michael a bit in the, in the Wales A team. And um, uh, Michael was playing for me at number eight. And then, when uh, rugby went regional uh, in Wales, uh, I spoke to uh, my new chairman of the Newport Gwent Dragons, and I said, "Look, the first guy I'd like to get on my team sheet is Michael Owen. I think he's not only a you know a fantastic rugby player, but he's got this amazing rugby brain uh, for a forward. As an ex-forward myself, I was uh, head down, backside up, you know. So it hadn't been." <laughs> I hadn't seen too many of these guys who could raise the head above the, you know, the sort of melee and um, and see where space was and and have an, uh, an ability to sort of know how to um, break down defences as a forward. So um, I managed to convince the Newport Grand Dragons that we should sign Michael Owen, and uh, we managed to do that. And um, you know, he, uh, he he always impressed me really, uh, not just as a rugby player but as a a quietly spoken leader who sort of, uh, people wanted to follow, you know? So, um, well, so I, was it, delighted that, I was delighted we got him on board, and then delighted I got to work with him in the Welsh team.
3: Do you recognise yourself from that portrait, Michael? Uh, oh, it's very nice of Mike to make to see those things. Okay. Yeah, a, a b- little bit of truth, I think. Yeah, I well, it was a downside, and that was a scrum cap. I think <laughs> that was the only thing
4: we <laughs> let him down. That
3: was a ba- bad decision, Mike. That was because of all the scrummaging <laughs> practice you used to make this do. On the on,
2: on the other hand, his ears still look vaguely human, so I suppose there's some benefit <laughs> to it. Uh, Mike, you, <laughs> met, you mentioned there, and I hope it uh, I hope it wasn't uh, an insult to say that he, he was bright. He was very bright for a forward. <laughs> but uh he also went on to captain Wales um there's many ways of doing that but uh, how did it, how did how did Mike Owen's personality uh, make him a suitable captain
4: yeah well um Michael was my original sort of vice captain if you like and um, Garth Thomas was was the captain and then Garth got injured uh, in uh, the first half out in France and we were we were losing I think something like 15 six uh, at half time France were all over us um beating us in every department, really. And um, I remember turning to Clive Griffiths, our defence coach, and saying, Clive, you know, we'd be lucky to get out of this under 30 points, the way things are going, you know. So um, we walked in at halftime, uh, got the medical report that Gareth Thomas was injured. He'd broken his thumb, And Michael, of course, then, uh, I asked him to sort of take the, the reins as the vice-captain to become captain. And again, what, what, what impressed me, there was no panic, um... Michael just sort of said, right, this is what we're going to do, took charge, boys got in behind him. And, uh, you know, we got out there for the second half and the boys just played some fantastic rugby. And I think you've got to put a lot of that down to Michael's calmness in a very pressure, pressurised, um, uh, you know, environment in a in a tough sort of uh, moment. And that's when you need quality guys just to say, hey, I'm not phased by this if we do these two or three things really well, now we can uh, get back in the game. And I think that was, you know, what sort of stood out for me with Michael. And then, of course, he led us then to, uh, you know, to victory up in Scotland. And um, and then, of course, at home, I think, against Ireland, uh, again, where his leadership skills were uh, to the fore. And, um, yeah, what a fantastic player he was.
2: Michael, um, there comes a moment, uh, following your, your brilliant Uh, 2005 Triumph in the Six Nations that I think a lot of rugby players like as well. Um, In fact, I've never spoken to a rugby union player who wasn't deeply, deeply affected by their experience with joining the British Lions, and you had that opportunity.
3: Yeah, it was amazing. So um, I got selected for the British Lions, which was uh, obviously a great honour, and uh, going to the toughest place uh, in the world to tour, so going to New Zealand, yeah, and we had a a week get-together in uh, Cardiff. We ended up playing Argentina, and I was lucky enough to be uh, to be given the captaincy and stuff for that game um, uh, at the Millennium Stadium. So that was a great honour. The game itself didn't go so well. We didn't play uh, great, but we didn't have much preparation either going into the game. We sort of just did a little bit of lineup stuff and uh, and fair play to Argentina. As always, it was always uh, very combative and and they play with tremendous passion. And we uh, we struggled in the game, and I think it was a draw in the end.
2: I don't know how the tour went for you in New Zealand um, in terms of. What, what your memories are enjoyable or not but it was certainly complicated for you um, you played in the opening game or you played against the Maori and then your daughter came along and you had to go back to Britain in the middle of the tour it was a messy, messy sort of start to the tour
3: my daughter Olivia was born yeah and uh, I went back to see her being born and everything which was obviously a, a really special moment it wasn't there's was a, a difficult moment for me and my family in terms of um, leaving and going back to the tour and stuff so it's uh, obviously a Torn and sort of on the tour as well. It's a, it's just a, a how, difficult how situation. How long were you in Wales for? Um, or, for about two or three, two or three days. So it wasn't very long at all. So um. So was, you
2: had to fly the whole bit to the world. Yeah. See your see your baby being born. Yeah. And then fly back again.
3: Yeah, and it was amazing. I was uh, obviously I didn't in some ways didn't want to be in New Zealand. You wanted to be at home with with your family and um yeah, but uh, I chose to do that. It was my choice and, and I made that. So um yeah, and it was just a difficult. Uh, and in terms of the tour itself, going back to the rugby, it was just I, I didn't feel that it affected me adversely. I think um I went uh, so we played uh so we played, uh, the Argentina game was a write off. I don't think anyone played, anyone did themselves any favour in that game. It didn't do very well. And I played against Taranaki um in one of the early games, like second game of the tour I think it was. Um and I had a great game as well. I played really well. I was on like so like my passing and vision and stuff was really good. I was involved in a couple of like, great movements and plays and, and and really enjoyed it. So I felt like I was playing well. I went back on the tour and we were playing Otago um, and Ryan Jones had come on the tour and had a great game that night. But I came on in that game and made, it was on for like 10 minutes and maybe I had like five touches of the ball and I, I felt like I was playing well. The coaches obviously felt differently. Before that game, we played against the Maoris. Tough game for all of us. I made, at the end of the game, I think... Um, Myself and Martin Williams. Maybe I made a pass to Martin Williams. Martin Williams made a break, gave a ball back to me. And then I tried to do like a... a, It was a really poor decision by me. Tried to do... Uh, which I was normally good at, would have been quite composed in the and tried to do a, 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 a ridiculous pass around my back, which was like a, a stupid thing to do. Um, and it didn't come off. Um, and uh, then... You got uh, the talent, uh, it. Uh, Yeah, yeah, but it uh, clearly didn't have the talent to do that. But um, yeah, it didn't go well. I on. Don't, I don't know, I didn't get any feedback from the coach, but I think that would have been like for Clive Woodward uh, in terms of his thing and all his mantras and stuff are talking about Thinking, uh, teacup or whatever, thinking correctly in the pressure. So I probably didn't like endear myself there. So I didn't get And then I was sort of on the out there for the rest of the tour. But I still I felt like I got, uh, I felt like I played well enough. The Auckland game at the end of the tour, I felt like I had a good game as well. And obviously, captain the side against uh, Southland, I felt like I, I was, I certainly wasn't, didn't feel like I was out of form playing out there. I could have done better. But as a team, we never really got going. We didn't, uh, the tour itself was like, Complicated in terms of having the two squads, and it was a good idea, but it, I don't think it really worked. And the tour didn't get, never really got going, and we never—I don't think we certainly didn't get the best out of the the, the play, the considerable playing talent that was there. So it was a, it was a shame. But uh, whose
2: door did do you lay that at, Clives?
3: Um, I think, yeah, you have got to him. I think as a, as a coach, I think he tried to do something very different from the two thousand and one tour in terms of he saw the problems that were there and tried to do. It. And you got to admire him for trying to do that, for trying to do it differently. But I just felt that he didn't get the nuts and bolts right in terms of. Uh, in terms of the coaching, in terms of um you need people like when you when you whoever the coach is gonna be you need to have that central figure who puts his heart and soul into that into that team and trying to shape it in his image or whatever and that never really happened. There was never really anyone sort of in control of that of that tour if you like and in terms certainly in terms of the rugby side of it and how we were gonna play and that was what uh I think ultimately uh undid it. But I had a great time. The two we met some fantastic people and just like brilliant to meet people from all the different nations and get to know them a little bit, and had a, a wonderful experience. Still friends
2: with some of those players? Yeah,
3: yeah. So I've met up with a few of the people. Obviously the Welsh guys and stuff, and then but yeah, and I th- it's just yeah, just got lots of good contacts and lots of good people. And it's one of those things you may not be like in touch with people all the time, but if you bump into someone, you sit down and have a chat, and it's just a, it's just a, it's a nice thing. And that camaraderie and common experience is, uh, is something special.
2: We might gloss over the 2006 Six Nations because <laughs> following the. Uh, the, the Grand Slam and Wales were pretty terrible I think the following yeah. year that's um, the way we
3: that's the way we like to do it go, yeah. go up and down and uh, not, make it exciting for people not <laughs>
2: helped perhaps by Gavin Henson's book My Grand Slam Year
3: ah oh, yeah for, you know, I think like for Gavin he just he just like, one of those things isn't it I think a lot was made of that as well it's probably overstated and, and loads of things happen but um, yeah you just uh, that's the way it goes isn't it
2: and the World Cup comes around in 2007 I'm sorry I'm rattling through this but uh, there's plenty yeah, no, to get through Michael yeah. um, and Wales are in a group with Canada, who they beat, uh, with Australia, who you lose to, and then you beat Japan. Uh, you know what I'm going to say next. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to get through the group, you've got to beat Fiji. Now, of course, we saw in the last World Cup recently that uh, yeah. when Japan beats South Africa, that anything can happen Absolutely. at these levels. The gap between, because the other teams become professional, the gap is inevitably widening. But I do think that uh, that gap. Welsh lost to Fiji, maybe one of the most famous defeats in 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 world yeah. history, yeah. rugby like, history.
3: Uh, they were Fiji were fantastic, and they deserved the win. I think uh, as a like for, for me going to that World Cup, that was a, a a big achievement for me getting to the World Cup. I'd sort of after 2005, I got dropped in 2006 when Gareth Jenkins came in and. I had to work really hard to try and get back. I didn't get in the six nations I went to Australia uh, and had a had a great time, got back in the the squad. So I was really proud of that achievement and I felt like I'd improved as a player. And I went to the World Cup and I was on the bench. I think I came on in the, for Fiji, it was my last international for Wales and I had about fifteen minutes. Um but in terms of that game it was just um yeah, I think Fiji just they they just played a great match and we played some some great rugby you got as well. Thirty four points, but they yeah, got thirty eight. Yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a, probably a, a great match and Fiji just were were on fire and they went they nearly went they played South Africa in the quarterfinals and nearly beat South Africa. So they were they were clearly a a, a pretty talented good side. But uh, yeah. why was it your last game for Wales? Do you think? Because uh, he didn't pick me again. Um, yeah, uh, I I was really disappointed. Not disappointed, obviously disappointed. It's horrible for your Welsh career to finish, and when you've had that uh, as part of your life, you want to you want to keep going, and you, you you really miss it. But um, yeah, I think I, after that uh, tournament, Warren Gatlin came in, um, and and he didn't select me, which is uh, fair enough. So I remember I spoke to him before the. 2007 Six Nations said oh you're going to miss out this time um, we've chosen uh, no it wasn't Andy Power you just said you're just going to miss out we're not going to pick you and um, yeah I was getting because I felt at that time as well I'd sort of I'd worked really hard and by by being dropped it improved me as a player and I'd gone away and reflected on it I'd become a, better, a more all-round player I played that season I felt I played some great rugby for the Dragons um, and I think I could have thrived at international level and the Warren Gatland with the, the, the type of coach he is because he's he, he just wants like work rate and it's, it's people who got good basic skills. And I think I had some of those attributes and I think I could have thrived under him in terms of the other stuff that he, he would have uh, demanded of me as a player as well. So it was a disappointment not to play, but that's the, uh, that's the way it goes.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, after that, you, you carry on playing, you go from the dragons to Saracens. Nice to enjoy a uh, different atmosphere of English rugby. But then a series of really terrible injuries mean that uh, your career comes to a you know a stuttering end towards the end yeah. of the decade, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, definitely. It's really horrible for me. So I was still, I went to Saracens. Knee full injuries, of, I yeah, think it so is. Yeah, I went it? to Saracens full of ambition, and I signed for Eddie Jones, who's obviously a world-renowned top coach, and obviously pretty, uh, pretty, like,
2: pretty famous yeah. now. Yeah. 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 As yeah. Of today,
3: but he's, a, yeah, but he's a, obviously a top. Uh, I should top. make
2: the point we're making there because people were listening back yeah.
3: for years <laughs> on this
2: program. We actually recorded this program on the day that Eddie Jones was yeah. announced as the New England coach.
3: Yeah, but uh, yeah, but I. Had a, and he signed me and had an absolutely fantastic time moving to Saracens in many ways was one of the best decisions of my life me and my wife and my family an absolutely amazing time in St. Albans and my kids grew up there um, and yeah we just had a, had a wonderful time and the whole experience of playing in the Premiership and being at Saracens was uh, was really special and a great part of my life and it was unfortunate that it didn't work out I had um, two knee reconstructions so back to back I didn't recover from the first one and then when i was so i got released by Saracens then because of the clo if you have a close in your contract if you're injured for like more than six months you can be released and and that's what happened with the new coaches coming in Brendan Venter and then uh I tried to find uh other clubs and failed medic- failed medicals there so uh yeah, I was left with a decision to to retire and uh yeah that's uh but I think if someone had said to me when i uh started out this is the career you'll have but you will have to finish a little bit earlier I would have bitten their hand off and uh yeah
2: Michael, one of the stories that's emerged from that Welsh team of, say, 10 years ago, um, and he did indeed he, he was brilliant here on my sporting is that Gareth Thomas, 100 caps for Wales, one of the most impressive athletes I think I've ever met in terms of size and all the rest of it. Um, he tells the story, and of course he's on TV adverts now, telling the story of how he had to tell his teammates that he was gay. Um, it's such an unusual thing in top-class sport, ridiculously, but there it is. Um, did you know can you remember if you knew in the team
3: I think I can remember everything sort of breaking out it was around the time of the 2000s 2007 World Cup maybe a little bit before that so um, yeah I can remember all that sort of coming out and, and, and saying and that stuff being in the press and being speculated mm-hmm. upon yeah and I think it was a, a really tough time for Gareth as you say he's obviously a He's an impressive athlete and stuff. He's a big man, and I remember him. Um, he came to a camp, and he just looked really gaunt and really thin, and everything. Obviously, stress and things affecting him. But then, I think from a, a playing point of view, um, I don't think it didn't make any, it didn't make like any difference whatsoever. <laughs> Evan just treated him because he was a he was a, the, like the the life and soul of the team as well. If you like, he's always be the one on the bus, you messing about, having a laugh or whatever. And he was a he was a great captain for Wales, and he was also when I started playing for Wales, so. We, we like you said earlier. We weren't very good. We were struggling. So 2002, 2003, and sort of him and Colin Charles were really sort of um, set an example into not in to, just in, not in terms of off the field maybe, but in no. terms of the, the way they performed on the field. They were like real warriors uh, on the rugby field, and they'd like battle hard. And every time they played, they were just really impressive and really sort of showing you what you've got to do if you want to try and uh, and be a top international and have a good career. And he was certainly. Uh, a great example for myself and other people as young players. He got him on strictly come dancing or whatever it was he did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't see any of that. But uh yeah, I think uh I'm sure he was uh he was good now as well. But he's a he's a really nice fella and really warm and generous and uh yeah, I thought yeah, a remarkable and a character. great and a great personality. And yeah. he's obviously doing um some some really important stuff now and breaking down prejudices absolutely, and stuff. And that's a, uh absolutely. And, of course, to be commended. and of
2: course you know because because soccer, football still has no openly gay players at the top level. People think it's going to be this huge thing. and people, But what happened with Gareth shows that, you know, mostly people said, oh, good for you. Now get on with the game. And, yeah. they, and he was applauded on and off the pitch. And I know he was a great player. Yeah. And therefore he had the backing of the public. But I do think, um, uh, and, we, and of course, when he talks about it, he had to pluck up such incredible courage. And for a man who is so brave anyway with, with the way he plays, it was amazing but I do think we we've got to get past all this and just say look people are what they are she's not harming anybody it, else let's move on it doesn't know? make
3: any difference there's a, a, a in room environment as well like and I think it probably in, in in time it'd probably become uh, a joke sort of scenario and stuff and it, and it, as long and because he's comfortable with the people he's with and he's enjoying uh, their company it doesn't change it's just another. Just another facet of your life, isn't it? So he's, uh, yeah, he's uh... yeah.
2: Exactly. Well, that was one. Just some of the things I wanted to talk to you about. The other thing is Michael, because um, you are so recently in the game. I want to talk to you about the way the game is today, and um, we are recording this um, all in the immediate aftermath of uh, the Rugby World Cup, um, and New Zealand's triumph. Uh, I know that you thought the standard of rugby was extraordinary.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I thought um, the, the World Cup as a whole the way it was organized, the way uh, the, the stadiums were full, the way the the second tier nations if you like performed, uh, the shock of Japan beating South Africa, which is like one of the most incredible sporting uh, shocks of all time, I, I think. the old
2: Fiji thing offered it out of my def- mind, def- yeah. Ever, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um
3: and uh, and then New Zealand probably one of the greatest rugby teams of all time winning the tournament and this signing off for five or six like truly great players so yeah, it was just a uh, just an unbelievable tournament and someone like argentina as well coming in and showing such quality it was just a fantastic tournament and a fantastic advert for rugby and i think one of the things that was really important was the the values and everything they were on show as well i think like there were some great moments of uh, of sportsmanship and great moments of, of fun and it was just uh, just a wonderful tournament
2: when you were hurt uh, in 2009 I found, um, and this is relevant. To, I found when I was doing research for this program, a piece in the Guardian by Paul Rees saying that your injury was bringing to the end a career which had, its, in its own way, been allowed to fall away slightly by the changes in the game. And his argument was that um, players like yourself, a big man but very skilled, we heard the uh, the commentary on 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 Kevin's try, Kevin Morgan's try, where he says the number eight has great hands. Of course, that was you yeah. in the commentary. Um, has been replaced, at this time at least, in the writer's mind, by an obsession with size and power, uh, replacing skill. Um, I don't know what you feel about that, but I do know that in this World Cup, particularly New Zealand, no matter how big and tough you are, if you can't handle the ball, you won't get in their team, will you? And that's the difference between them and the Northern Hemisphere teams. Yeah, in
3: some, in some sense, yeah. You I can think... still
2: be a bullock in the Northern Hemisphere teams and not necessarily a skilled player with the ball you wouldn't get into New Zealand's team like that. Yeah, yeah
3: definitely, because they've, they've got more choice of players and they play in a different way and stuff. But New Zealand are pretty uh, remarkable. But I certainly think that, um, like when you look at the, the standard of rugby in the World Cup as well, it was tremendous and it was really entertaining. So well. I think there are a lot of people who maybe rugby's not like the sports fans, They just watch, a bit but they would have watched that rugby and they would have been absolutely enthralled and they would have thought, wow, what a sport this is. It's, uh, it's fantastic because of the, the multi-dimensions of it and the collisions and stuff. So I think, that um, when you when you go from watching the World Cup and then you put on like a Premiership match, uh, an English Premiership match, you and just... you watch
2: Glo- Bo- Gloucester and Bath <laughs> hiding the ball in in a ruck for twenty minutes, it's a different spectator diff- experience. It's a different
3: much different spectator experience. And I think sometimes I don't know whether because of because the, there's so many games, because there's, like twenty two games over the course of a, of a of a of a long period of time. I don't know whether that's maybe like too many games, and it just it does become very difficult as a player because the attrition and the the physicality takes its toll, and you're maybe not able to perform at your best and. Like in the World Cup, it was like those games were like flat out everything on the line. And when you're playing in the Premiership, maybe it's a bit more of a slog and a grind and you've got to sort of get through the season. And yet, you know, and
2: I'm one of the exact people you're talking about, somebody who likes the game at a very high level, but is not steeped in rugby. Yeah. And yet the things you remember, you, you don't you never, you never, don't remember the brilliant forward battles. And I understand that's oh. where it all goes <laughs> on. You don't remember the people who are getting to the breakdown first. You remember the ball going through hands Lightning fast running and somebody crashing over the line. Yeah, and the- I mean, even 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 that Welsh team that preceded you by a quarter of a century, which people still talk about. We course the Pontypool front row, and of course the grand Mervyn Davis and the great forwards they had. But what people remember is Barry John and Phil Bennett and Gareth Edwards and JPR Williams getting the ball and playing with it. I mean, that is what sticks in people's minds. Yeah, it's
3: how, it is the it's the iconic moments, isn't it? When you see people, a great team try with like multiple passes and multiple phases of play. That's what that is what people want to see, and it's like seeing people like Shane Williams, Jason of my year, Shane yeah. Williams, Jason Robinson, watching those players playing against them, playing with them. It's that. That's what sort of excites you and makes you. Uh, I would be.
2: I would be horrified if the game went to a place. And Jonah Loomis' recent death reminds us of the size of forwards now. Shane Williams is the exact, well done, the exact person to pick on. It would be terrible if someone of Shane's size suddenly was excluded from the sport.
3: Yeah, I think what happens is, though, I think the, the game changes... And, it, and people adapt to, to be able to cope with what the demands of the game are at that time. But someone like Shane Williams was incredibly strong, incredibly powerful, incredibly quick. So I don't think it's necessarily a size thing. It's about your power and your ability. And I certainly think now... With the step the work is happening in academies, they are trying to find those players who got those that X factor and just make the best of their athleticism. So I think there's always be a room for for players of all shapes and sizes.
2: I hope you're right, Michael. I really hope you're right. You have a great many years ahead of you, um, sort of uh, just just stepping out in front of you. Ask ask, tell me what where you are now in your life and, and what you hope for in the future.
3: Yeah, so when I finished uh, playing rugby, I uh, went back to university and finished my degree, um, and I got a t- um, did multiple things, so did some coaching at the Hartford Rugby Club. Um, did some media work and, and, and things like that. And then I got my degree with a view to becoming a PE teacher. Um, I went and trained in a school in, in St. Albans called Sandringham. Uh, had a great time there and then got a job at uh, Haleybury College, which is in Hertfordshire. Um, it's a boarding school, so I'm there as a director of rugby. I think it's uh, pretty
2: posh to have a director of rugby. Yeah, I
3: have a director of rugby um, and... Uh, um, and I'm working as a PE teacher as well. Um, and yeah, it's a fantastic job, so I'm getting to put back into the game. We've got a few uh, Saracens Academy kids there as well, so I'm getting to liaise with Saracens and trying to help develop them and help them to become um, like stars of the future, if you like, and uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying the school. It's a fantastic place, great environment to work. My children are attending the school and getting a fantastic education as well, so it's a really uh, a great lifestyle, and I'm really enjoying myself.
2: And tell me, please, the romantic in me wants to know, that Lucy from the French class, she's still on the scene.
3: Yeah, I me and Lucy going <laughs> strong. Yeah, so we're uh, we got three children. So we got uh, Ellie, who's thirteen, who's, uh, who's at Haylebury at the minute, and really enjoying herself. Uh, and then my daughter Olivia uh, and Sonny at the local uh, primary school called Morgan School in Hartford, which is a great school. Um, yeah, and they're having a great time, and uh, and life's pretty good. Exactly, but the, the, the issue with
2: meeting someone at 14 in the French class yeah. is that if you fall in love, then it's a hell of a long highway to 84. Isn't yeah, it? <laughs> we it Yeah we are
3: going all right. We got a good, uh, we got a great relationship, and having, uh, and we've been, we've been fortunate as well through rugby. We've done some, uh, had some amazing experiences, and uh, it feels like we're still in a bit of an adventure. We feel like tourists. We're so close to London, so we're able to pop into London and do all the, the things like that. So we still feel like we're uh, we're on holiday a little bit, so it's good fun.
2: You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening, and make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, and Spotify for more top Talk Sport content. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer.